Today we'll be discussing the recent controversy concerning comedian Hassan Minhaj, and we'll be discussing narcissistic personality disorder. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing the controversy surrounding a recent article about comedian Hassan Minaj. And we'll also be discussing narcissistic personality disorder. Those are too close together. You needed a sorbet, Asif. You needed some kind of palate cleanser. Now it clearly looks like we think that Hassan Minhaj has narcissistic personality disorder, which we do not. We cannot say that. If you want to say that after we go through NPD, huh? Huh? I know the lingo. If you want to think it, you can, but that's not what we're saying. No, there's no evidence out there that he has this disorder. So we just coincidentally chose these two. We've been meaning to talk about narcissistic personality disorder for a while now, and we just thought this is a perfect time. It's more an intervention because I wanted to tell you that you have it and you should just chill out. Well, we'll see about that. Once we get to that topic, you can decide who amongst your friends and colleagues has narcissistic personality disorder. Even you, too, can diagnose people with a personality disorder. It's a game where everyone loses. Okay, Ali, I want to talk to you about this recent article. It's generated a lot of buzz in the media about Hassan Minhaj. By the way, I try to pronounce his name the way he prefers to pronounce it, because Hassan and Ali Hassan are actually very similar. They're the same name, just one has two S's in it, but they're the same name, originally from Arabic. So why do I pronounce them differently? I just do, but I'm just trying to respect Hassan Different Minhaj. people have different preferences. Yeah, yeah Hassan yeah. Minhaj. Because I usually say Hassan Minhaj sounds like he's yeah. uh, related to Nicki Minaj, which he is not. Yeah. Again, we have no proof that he is or is not related to, to her. <laughs> okay. No proof. So, Ali, maybe you can walk us through this article. It was in The New Yorker by Claire Malone. If you guys have not read this article, you may want to just take it. It probably takes like 15 or 20 minutes to read it. It's not a terribly long article. You may want to just take a quick peek at this article and then come back to the podcast because it's very well written, well researched, and very interesting. Yeah, the article in The New Yorker is called Emotional Truths. It is about Hassan Minhaj. It is, at its core, is an article about how much non-truth telling, for lack of a better term, right now, we're going to dive into that. Can a comedian do? How much are they afforded? How many lies are they afforded? And it's a very interesting thing because when I first heard about the article, not having read it, I was like, this is a non-story. All comedians make stuff up. Every Mm -hmm, comedian mm -hmm. you have gone to see will start a joke with like, so I saw this guy earlier today on the sidewalk. You didn't see a guy. You certainly didn't see him today. He wasn't on the (laughs) sidewalk. You just thought about this and you created a whole thing, right? So in my mind, I'm like, why is this? And for me, it felt like what kind of weird hit job is this that's, that's happening right now? 
to read the article is to realize, <laughs> as is often the case, the depth of where this goes to and, and the complexity of this subject, because it is one thing for a comedian to fabricate, to exaggerate, to conflate different stories, to take somebody else's story and make it their own. It is one thing for a comedian to do that. As it turns out, whether we like it or not, whether Hassan Minhaj likes it or not, it is another thing for Hassan Minhaj to do it. And that is what this article is really about. Why do we hold Hassan Minhaj to a different standard? Well, you know, he was the lead and only anchor on his own show, Patriot Act, a show that was rigorously fact-checking, you know, because they were at risk of getting death threats from certain countries, which they did. India was definitely very upset, and, and so was Saudi Arabia. And Hassan's life was a little bit like, you know, it's probably more than he bargained for. But rigorous fact-checking is critical for that show. He has also been a correspondent and now a guest anchor and up for possibly being the replacement of Trevor Noah as the anchor of The Daily Show, another show that requires tons of fact-checking. They have journalists on staff who fact-check and probably get in the way and really jam things up, you know, really kill the buzz of the show often. That's a different, that's a different story altogether. But, you know, there are some stories that Hassan told Two that really stick with me in his specials, and one was about a Muslim, an operative, an FBI operative posing as a Muslim in his mosque. He called him Brother Eric. It's a great story. Many people immediately went to the internet and were like, is this true? This can't be true. This is a crazy story. And what do you know? Brother Eric exists, and he was in a mosque. And you're like, wow, that's insane. A little bit more prying reveals that Brother Eric existed, but was nowhere near Hassan Minhaj's uh, mosque. He was actually in prison in the year that Hassan Minhaj said that he was there. He didn't even operate in the same area of California. And so it was completely, you know, he took something that existed somewhere and applied it to him. Another story is this envelope that came to his home. He opened it, powder fell out of the envelope. And when I heard this story already, I was like, I don't believe that this is true. I believe his daughter might have been nearby, but the story he told was it went right on his daughter and they had to rush her to the hospital. And so he's pulling on, it's a very emotional story. Obviously, he 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 minds it for laughs after the fact, but he goes to some deeply emotional places. And I went along in those places as well with him, even though part of me didn't believe that it happened, just because I'm a comedian and I know how you know stories are created. But the idea in this New Yorker article is... What is somebody like Hassan Minhaj allowed to get away with? What are they allowed to do? He was confronted. This is being referred to as an expose in the New Yorker. This article, Claire Malone, who wrote it, she went and did the research on his jokes and found that a number of them, I think she mentions five in total, never happened or didn't happen to him. And when he was pressed about it and questioned about it, he was pretty, you know, casual and not caring about it. He said, it doesn't matter. He's not going for the actual truth. He is going for the emotional truth. The fact is it happened. It didn't happen to him, but these are things that happen. Or if they're too crazy and would never happen, he said, that's the point that some of these things are so crazy, but crazy things are happening. So on and so forth. Again, 
it is to be read. It is to be read just so you can get a sort of an honest, you know, assessment of your own on what is happening here. Asif, your reaction when you read this was not a pleasant one as far as Hassan Minhaj is concerned. Is that right? I think it's pretty damning article. I think his nonchalance about it is the most damning thing. I think he's not going to get the host of The Daily Show because of this. I think that's pretty clear. And I'll get into why maybe in a couple minutes about what I really think the issue is. The article, I think it's well-reported, well-researched, as we said. I do think it kind of gets into things that are a bit tangential about how some of the people he worked with thought that he was maybe didn't treat some of the people that well over dismissive. Now, the author's point is a lot of these people were the fact checkers and journalists on Patriot Act, and he kind of dismissed them. It's a bit hard to tell if it was just overall kind of rude behavior or specifically rude to them because they were trying to instill the facts into his thing. And remember, Patriot Act, like just like The Daily Show, and just like the last week tonight with John Oliver, you know, it's like a PowerPoint presentation, right? They'll talk and then at the back, they have the facts. They have, you know, and they'll reference Reuters and they'll reference the New York Times and, and or they'll play clips from CNN. So they're always referencing and backing up everything they say. So I think this is what you have to couch everything in. I do want to ask you, Ali, again, before I get really into my opinions about this, is this similar to other examples where we've had people telling mistruths misremembering things and maybe we'll give one example from comedy that or comedian that you've told me about and then i'll give one example from like a news anchor because this is uh, someone who's in between right and hasan minaj and john stewart don't consider themselves that they consider themselves just comedians but they are not him, John Oliver, and Stephen Colbert back in his old show, I would say not now, John Stewart, and Trevor Noah, they all function more than just comedians. And as much as they like to deny they are, and John Stewart denied it all the time, he's wrong. He is more than a comedian. They also are trying to impart knowledge and opinions to people and the news. So we'll talk about both of them. So you were told me about, I think we even mentioned on the podcast, about this guy, Steve Rianazizi. Yeah, he's on a show called The League. Yeah. Never watched that one, but I know about it. It's like an all-star cast of killer funny people. I'll, I'll tell you that if you're, I mean, and if you find fantasy pools, sports fantasy pools amusing like I do, and you want to see great comedic actors, it's, it's a show to be watched. He made up a thing completely about his whereabouts on 9-11. His whole thing was just a, like a, he, he said he had to escape the 9-11 terrorist attacks. He worked at Merrill Lynch. He was in the South Tower when the plane struck the North Tower. He said which floor he was on. You know, their tower got jostled and they heard, you know, Port Authority come on. The, I mean, it's very, very detailed. It's clearly somebody else's story. He scrambles downstairs. And then when he's on the ground, bam, second tower is hit. And it's a crazy crazy story. And he stuck to that for many years. And then at one point, I don't know if somebody else exposed him. So he just came clean. I don't remember that. Or he just decided to say, you know, his statement was that as a young man, I made a mistake. I deeply regret it. And for that, I make apologies that may still not be enough. And he talks about making up, you know, the whole story of where he was on 9-11. And the point of his apology to me, the most important point, the most pertinent part of this, he says at the end of his apology, 
it is to the victims of 9-11 and to the people that love them and the people that love me that I ask for forgiveness. And, and that's the part that sticks. You want to make up some stories, that's fine. But it's like, don't take away something that was particularly horrific, traumatic, and awful for people actually and try to be part of it. And it reminds me of the show Dear Evan Hansen. The play, the Broadway play. The play, yeah. The, the, when I say the show, I'm talking about the Broadway show, the Broadway play. You know, I went to see it in Toronto and heard an interview with the two people who created it. And both of them went to different high schools. They were talking about in both their high schools, they had at least one kid die in high school. And when that kid died, they both remarked about how so many students were like, oh my God, I miss them. They were like this and they were always like this. And there's this concept of collective grief, this psychological concept that maybe we should do an episode on where people just want to be part of that grieving thing. And so people who never even talked to the deceased were all of a sudden like, I remember when he did this. People who wouldn't even lower themselves to ever, you know, like honor that person's presence, you know, like whatever, the jocks, nerds, whatever divides. And all of a sudden it's like, I remember then you just want to be part of something. And that was attributed to Steve Renazizi. And I believe in some this is just my thought. What do I know? But I feel like it certainly smells of that with Hassan Minhaj as well, a little bit. Like his 9-11 stories were quote unquote, not cool enough. And when I say not cool enough, I mean not compelling enough to be story worthy. And so he had to be part of these other stories, which I don't like that. I will say that. I'll give my example from the news in a second. It's about Brian Williams, but let's get to that in a second. I do, I do want to follow what you just said, though, because you wrote a one-man play called Muslim Interrupted. You wrote a book, Is There Bacon in Heaven?, which are stories from your life. And I remember, just as a corollary to that, I had a friend. He was a consultant. He worked all around the world. He had some amazing stories from when he worked in Africa. They were so funny and interesting. I just, I'm like, you got to write a book. So he tried to write a book. And he's like, no, it's just a collection of anecdotes. There's no through line. So he like felt he had to like try and make up a, a romance in it and, and that didn't happen. Hmm. And he's just like, you know, in the end, I think he just gave up because he's like, this is now I'm just making a fiction thing. Like, you know, it's barely based on, on anything that really happened. And we've seen this with many nonfiction writers in quotation marks, and they end up adding a bunch of things that turn out to be false later on. And so how did you address that? Or am I, you know, Breaking out a big bombshell here that you lied throughout your uh, memoir. Second expose of the week. That's right. Another guy with the name Hassan in his name. You know, there is a, I don't know what you would call it, not a mantra, but there is this saying, never let the truth stand in the way of a good story, right? This is like storytellers believe this. And I... Look, I'm not better than anybody, and I'm not trying to say that. And I do have some conflations to make the punchline, you know, different. But I don't believe in really taking a story completely that is not mine and, and making it my own. I don't feel good about that. When I was doing a lot of stand-up, as opposed to these longer storytelling shows that I do, there's all it always struck me about, you know, people who talked about like, yeah, my 11-year-old. And then later I go, oh, they have an 11-year-old? And somebody would say, yeah, their 11-year-old is 21 years old now. I'd be, what? Because I would feel bad. I'm making fun of my four-year-old son. And that joke is now a year old. 
and now he's about to turn six, I would be like, oh man, how do I, it's mm-hmm. funnier if he's four. That's, and therein lies the problem, right? You're looking for funny and there's something funnier about when something is said by a four-year-old and those same words from a six-year-old are no longer funny. And so what you do is you pretend they're four or you write a new joke. And writing a new joke is much more difficult than pretending they're four. And I don't know Hassan bin Hajj's life, but that dude has got to be busy as hell. You can imagine, especially, you know, he's got a young family, but he's also got the Daily Show. He's got, you know, watching, what's that, the morning show. There he is watching this. There he is watching Apple commercial, whatever, you know, or whatever product he was shilling. That guy's got a lot going on. There's just not the time to not only not, you know, sit there and mine your life for like the actual things that happen. There's not actually things happening to you. You're just going to your job and you're working all day. You're having interactions with people. And most of your experiences are maybe talking to other people and getting stories from them. So he's in a weird position that way. And you know, I heard this morning on another podcast on commotion on CBC, some of the the panel that was gathered together on Friday to talk about the same subject. They were talking about, you know, he's also mined trauma. Like he is mining trauma by the by the shovelful. So it's like that's kind of the brand. One of the comedians was saying that's what people seem to like out of people of color as well. Mm, interesting. Yeah. That's another element here. You know, this this comedian in Toronto, Cassie, was saying, you know, I used to talk about like cute little things like airports and airplane food and nobody cared at all. As soon as I ta- started talking about what it's like to be an Asian woman dating a white man, all of a sudden there's like this great interest and stuff like that. And so you find like, oh, your culture has to come into it. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where I'm going with this other than I sympathize with him a little bit. But there is a slightly gross feeling about a couple of things. I do feel a little bit misled. And I can remove color out of this particular thing that I'm feeling because of exactly the two people you mentioned. I thought to myself, what if John Oliver did this? Would I feel the same way? A hundred percent, maybe even more, because I'm a big fan of John Oliver's and I like Hassan Minaj, but I love John Oliver. John Stewart, the exact same thing. I'd have been like, come on, man. You know, we people come to you for actual. And, and I think they take that responsibility seriously. It certainly seems like it. And that's a big part of this. That's a big part of this, that he's not a goofy one. You know, he's not Bert Kreischer running around shirtless on stage and mm-hmm. telling stories about the Russian mob that may or may not be true. Who cares? Thanks for a great story, Bert. This is a guy. And that's why also there's another element here that I have to mention. When he was doing Homecoming King, which is a great special, very, very funny. And again, mind, you know, for emotions mm-hmm. and, and, and emotional truth and all that. He put that woman's face on screen, blurted out, but he's so like sort of tech driven in his shows, right? He wants technology to be part of it. That's his his generation, his younger generation who's all tech. And that isn't cool. Like you're really presenting it as if the story is real when you put her face up. Now he blurred the face. He put her face up with the other person and he didn't do a good job making her anonymous. She was tracked down. She was doxxed. She was like, you know, people were uh, abusive to her for what she did to Hassan. And she's like, I told him I wasn't going to prom weeks before. That didn't happen on the night of prom. He made up that part of the story. 
And so that, and how little he cares about that is also a concern. That's not good. Yeah, it becomes difficult. And what you mentioned before about Jon Stewart and John Oliver, yeah, so I was going to talk about Brian Williams. So this is the problem. He's a news anchor. He, trust is the thing with a news anchor, right? That's what we respect news anchors for, is being forthright, honest. Yeah. When I watch Tucker Carlson, that's what I always of wanted course, from him. Yes. He's just a trustworthy guy and everything is truth. So he claimed that he was basically flying in a military helicopter and it had been forced down after being hit by an RPG. And eventually, like after he said that, and it wasn't just actually one telling of this, that's what he kind of finally came out with. But this occurred over years and years. You know, at first he said it was it was a helicopter that was ahead of us. And then it changed that it was his. And then, oh, you know, they were fired upon and, you know, the bullets missed him by inches. And it kind of just evolved over time. And, you know, the people who were, the, the soldiers were like, this didn't happen, basically. It's been well established. This is not really what happened. It was actually a helicopter that was about 30 minutes ahead of them. And they did have to land because they didn't want to be shot at, uh, you know, with an RPG. But so he was he suspended for six months, I think, without pay, and he was demoted, NBC. So it was, a, it was quite a big deal. But the interesting thing about this is I think it's a very different situation here. Malcolm Gladwell has a great podcast, Revisionist History, if people haven't listened to it. And several seasons ago, he had a whole episode on this, and he said, this is actually how memory works. Over time, we conflate and we combine different memories and, and we shift times, locations, and misremember details. So, you know, part of it is in the retelling, part of it is combining things. I think we could all agree there's a big difference between a helicopter that you couldn't even see getting hit by an RPG and your own helicopter doing it. But he was a bit more forgiving in this situation. But even though that is pretty irresponsible, I would think, for someone who is based in the truth, as a news anchor should be. I think actually Hassan Minaj's uh, situation is worse than this, than, than what Brian Williams did. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And because I, I thought a lot about it, and almost worse than, worse than Steve Ranazizi, because Steve Ranazizi, that had nothing to do with his comedy. Like, he was an actor on a TV show. Like It's almost like, why are you telling the story? It wasn't part of his any comedy act, as far as I know, and I don't know that much about it. And I think he did offend people. He had to apologize to Pete Davidson. I think he apologized personally to him, because Pete Davidson's father died in 9-11. So I think Hassan Minaj is worse. And this is the reason why, like, first of all, he routinely challenges people. You know, he interviewed Obama earlier on this year, I believe. And he asked Obama, he said he was talking about his best of list, you know, best movies of the year, TV shows, music, right, albums. He said, you don't really consume all that, do you? And Obama said, no, I do. And Minaj pushed back, pushed back and said, no, you didn't. No, you don't. I'm like, you're doing it as a joke, but you're kind of serious about it. You do think that he hires a bunch of people and they all say, you should make sure you mention, you know, the last season of Atlanta, make sure you mention this book, right? And it's just so interesting that he's calling out the president on this when he has this whole lie. When I spoke to him, I, I interviewed Hassan Minhaj. He pushed back on me as well. And I was the president of my high school debating club. That's not true. I just made that up. There was no debating club in my high school. But yes, no, pushback is what he does, I mean, is what I mean to say. And I remember, because we've talked about this on the podcast before, he was like, you know, why don't you pronounce your name Ali Hassan? Yeah. 
And then you're like, well, it doesn't matter. He's like, no, it does matter. It does matter. You know it matters, dude. You know it matters. And I was like, mm, it matters okay. to you, but does it? This is the problem. This is the exact problem with him. So he pushes back on these people. And I I actually last night watched The King's Jester. I always meant to watch it. I just never got around to it. It came out last year, and I just never got around to it. But watching something after the fact is like, like so some of the jokes are hilarious. He does a whole thing about Kumail Nanjiani's like, topless you know shirtless photo of him all buff and how that look makes other brown guys look bad it's great there's some really funny stuff he talks about picture day at school which is also a great little bit so really funny stuff and you know but you never found yourself during those bits wondering is this even true no good point so of course they're not true. Him talking about how he, he was confronting some hedge fund manager at the school when his daughter had like a big runny nose and it was all gross and he confronts this guy. Like, of course that's not true. I mean, I realize that because it's played for for laughs, right? He has another one about his daughter just staring at him in the eyes. And of course, that's how you know she's Indian because she stares all the time because Indian people stare at you all the time in case you non-Indians didn't know that. So, mm-hmm. of course, I'm sure his daughter does stare. So there are things that I know are just, but that's part of the humor, right? But this is the key. So I wrote this down when I was watching it. It's towards the end of the special. He's like talking to the audience. Everything here is built on trust. I need to be able to switch between satire and sincerity and trust that you know the difference. He said this in his special. This is the problem. This is, you've encapsulated the problem with you, Hassan. The problem is, is that he's not mining these stories for laughs. If he was, it's perfect. It would be, it doesn't matter. Like if these stories were all about the jokes, but they're not. He talks about, you know, seeing this brother, Eric, and they ran to the bathroom and he got arrested by the car and all this stuff that happens and he tried to get him to confess and none of this happened. And when he says it, you hear people in the audience gasp and go, oh, and you know, like they're, they're so emotionally invested in this story and his daughter, the anthrax and like, you know, the doctor comes out, you know, with an FBI agent behind them saying, you know, you've really angered some people if they're doing this to you. Audience is like, their, their breath is held. They're so into it. And it's like, what are you doing here? Because people know you're making up the stuff for the comedy, but they don't know that you're making this stuff up. Again, his last special, I loved it, The Homecoming King, because it balanced the sympathy for his situation and and the comedy. But I'm like, if the sympathy is all manufactured, I don't know. Well, he's asked in this New Yorker article, do you feel like you're manipulating people? And he says, I'm not. And I don't feel that because the idea is to get to an emotional truth. And this is his, some people will call it, you know, his guiding light. And some people will call it maybe a crutch or, you know, some kind of like this, this sort of phony thing that he relies on. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, those are interesting things you're saying about it being worse than Brian Williams. I can't help but wonder how many audience members will really care. This is a huge problem in comedy. They're not going to not book him. This guy has 2 million followers on Instagram. At most, I feel like it'll go down to 1.7. You know what I mean? He's not being abandoned. People in general are not going to care. His friends in comedy are still his friends. People who love him are still going to love him. People still loved Bill Cosby till like this morning. You know what I mean? Like always. It's just, and this is part of the problem. Like in this industry, no matter what you, even you're, you're stealing jokes and there's like these people going, he, he stole that joke from me. I wrote that joke. We were like, oh, that sucks. Anyway, I got tickets for him, a hundred bucks a ticket. I'm going to go see him in November. They don't really care. Will audience members, because audience members, 
you know, there's that cognitive dissonance. It's like, well, I didn't go to the show expecting the comedian to tell the truth. That's not what I go to comedy for, right? That's the first thing. And then, you know, I can't help but people think that people are also going to feel like, you know, this dude's pretty smug, right? Mm -hmm. He's a pretty smug, cocky dude. You just illustrated it in the way he pushes back at the former president, right? This is where he's good. And I think some people are going to see like, oh, they saw a successful brown man making it. And this is like revenge because he had too much power and they wanted to uh, bring him down a few notches. So the counterbalance for those people will be like, so I'm going to support Hassan even more. So there will be people like that. I think it's going to be a bit more tricky because let's use Louis C.K. as an example. You and I, you know, I don't listen to Louis C.K. anymore. I think he never apologized for the disgusting things he did. And I that's think, the reason I don't listen. Had he apologized, it would have been and a different thing. And you know, thing. Uh, other people, Michelle Wolf disagrees. She just came out the other day saying that, you know, she thinks he's apologized enough. And well, that's, that's your opinion, Michelle. I disagree with it. But those people, his Louis C.K.'s fans can say, I'm separating. I'm separating the art from the artist. The problem is his art, it's all intertwined because it's his sincerity that people are attracted to. That's the reason why you like something like Homecoming King more than, say, the typical stand-up special, because it weaves in the sympathy, which I don't think he has anymore. I don't think I could watch anymore. I could watch a straight comedy show from him. I couldn't fathom trying to watch something where he's being sincere, telling a sincere story. And so this is why I don't think he's going to be on The Daily Show. And this is the number one thing which I was going to finish with is, I'll tell you why he can never be on The Daily Show or have Patriot again. Because this is a type of expose that he would do on somebody else in Hmm. a heartbeat. That's it. He's been got by the exact thing he used to do to other people. He got got. Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. I think, I don't believe he's going to be canceled. I don't believe it's the last we've heard of Hassan Minhaj. I think he will always have his fans, you know, people who grew up with him and they helped him like, you know, see themselves, right? They felt represented and seen because of him. He'll always have that. But I believe you've got a great point that the Daily Show producers will absolutely have to keep in mind. Homie got got. Okay, Asif, Narcissistic Personality Disorder, which we will refer to as NPD for short. Again, unrelated to our discussion, probably, maybe. We don't know, but just something we've wanted to talk about for a while. Something that I happen to, again, this is, I don't know what this says about me, but, you know, when we talked about BPD, which is Borderline Personality Disorder, I did have some knowledge about that. I also have some knowledge about NPD, Mm -hmm. somebody, let's say someone in the extended family definitely has it. It's quite clear. I'll reference them throughout this segment. And also I'm a comedian and I'm pretty sure, you know, I know a few comedians who suffer from this. Suffer is an interesting word because some of them don't fully Mm -hmm, realize mm -hmm. they're suffering at all. And then, yeah. There's a few other people I've met along the way in my life, you know, oh, friends yeah. who yeah, uh, I, I definitely know some of your friends who are like this, and I'm sure you could think of some examples from my friends. And of course, lots of my colleagues 
do have this, you know, God complex and doctors. It's all intertwined, right? Okay, so that's interesting that God complex and and NPD come up in the same sentence. So let's talk about it. What is narcissistic personality disorder? Yeah, so in general, it's this pattern of behavior. So it's a personality disorder. It's something that can be ingrained in people from an early age. We'll talk about the reasons why. The main things is a sense of grandiosity, a need for constant admiration, and a lack of empathy. So now you're starting to see some of these things, why, even though Ali and I do very different things for a living, right, that some of these people are attracted to these different fields that we do, even though they're quite opposite, right? Yeah. The term narcissist or narcissistic personality is based on the legend of Narcissus from Greek mythology. You know, good old Narcissus. So the story goes that there was this mountain nymph named Echo, and Echo saw Narcissus, this beautiful young man who rejected her. So she lived out her life in desolation and kind of faded away until only an echo of her voice remained. Now, then there was Nemesis. We, we use the term Nemesis all the time, but that was the god of revenge. He punished Narcissus by luring him to a pool of water. And I think people have heard about this. He looked at his image he didn't realize it was his own reflection. And he's like, oh, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And he falls in love with his image. And the more he stares, the more infatuated he becomes. And then he realizes that his love can never be reciprocated because it's just an image. And so he just remains in despair, fixated by his image. And then he just dies. So he has the same fate that he inflicted on Echo happens to him. And Echo is at his side, this disembodiment who just repeats his last words over and over again. So the sad story of Narcissus and Echo. Nemesis is pretty mean in that story. Yeah. He was a bit of a, well, you know, the goddess of revenge. I mean, it's a god of revenge. I apologize. Uh, nemesis is a, is a goddess. So yeah, Nemesis, but that's Nemesis's job, right? Anyway, so that's, that's basically the story and where it kind of comes from. So that is more a story about Greek mythology yes. and the word narcissist. But I, okay, let, when I say, what is oh, it? Yeah. I want to, what I'm really looking for is those DSM criteria of okay. what makes okay. a narcissist. Because that's like, to me, that was one of the most enlightening things. We went, you know, as we were thinking, does this family member have NPD? We pulled up this list of criteria. You have NPD if you have whatever, 10 of these 12 things. And it was just like, ding, 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 ding. And, you know, he won the narcissism game in that moment. There was maybe one thing he didn't have. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, and DSM, I think we've talked about it many times. For those who may not know, those who are more entertainment inclined and not medically inclined, it's the diagnostic systems manual and kind statistical of a, a, manual you always get that wrong but that's okay guy you know and it's a book it's a big it has a, the <laughs> it's stuff. a book that we use okay so there are actually two subtypes of npd the grandiose subtype and the vulnerable subtype so the grandiose one people that's the kind of the more classic one you look arrogant pretentious dominant self-assured maybe aggressive and the latter one you're overly sensitive and insecure and defensive about everything and maybe anxious. And there's a big, heavy undercurrent of shame and anxiety. 
So it's interesting because they almost opposite presentations. Yeah. This guy Rosenfeld kind of initially described these as being thick-skinned or thin-skinned narcissism. So you mm-hmm. can kind of think of it like that. But both people do the same thing. They have a preoccupation with satisfying their own needs at the expense or consideration of others. Okay? So now we're getting to be like, oh, wait a minute. This sounds like somebody I know. So... Here's the criteria. You need this pervasive pattern of grandiosity, need for admiration, and this lack of empathy begins in early adulthood, and you need five of these criteria, okay? Number one, has a grandiose sense of self-importance. So you exaggerate your achievements. You want to be recognized as superior to others. Even if you haven't done these things, you kind of make it up and want to be superior. Preoccupied with fantasies of success, power, brilliance, beauty, perfect love. You believe that you are special and you can only associate with other people who are special or institutions that are special, right? I need to go to the best medical school. I'm the best. You need admiration all the time. There's a sense of entitlement, such as an unreasonable expectation of favorable treatment or that you are going to comply with their expectations. So so you being the victim of the narcissist, right? Like you have to comply with whatever they want exploitative and takes advantage of others to their own ends, lacks empathy, cannot identify with the needs of others, is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of them, and then shows arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. So those are the criteria. You need five of those. So And haughty, by the way, it's not another way of saying hot behavior. Yeah, I may like have mispronounced sexy. that. H-A-U-G-H-T-Y. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are the criteria. So tell me how common is it? And also, is it something that's increasing in society? Is it something that's, you know, especially when you say entitlement, you just feel like more and more people have these feelings of entitlement in society. Is this narcissism? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So it's very difficult to diagnose it. So the prevalence estimates are very difficult to kind of ascertain. They think that it could be as little as 0.5% of just people out there in the community to as high as 15%, one five in clinical settings. So like in a psychiatrist's office or psychiatrist practice, 15% of their patients maybe will have NPD, whereas in the overall community, maybe 0.5 to 1%. So it's still pretty common, but it is difficult to get a handle on things. But what you mentioned before is interesting. There is accumulated evidence, okay, that there's rising rates of narcissism in American college students if they look at a period of time between 1979 and 2006. And some people say this is an epidemic of narcissism in American society. The idea from these cultural psychologists and anthropologists, they basically think that the USA is very focused on individualism and professional success and fame and wealth you celebrate all these things. Whereas Eastern cultures and Asia and the Middle East, they kind of have a shared idea of shared parenting, collectivism, and they have less of these traits. So Western countries such as the USA are higher than these other countries. So you, you're you saying that it's on the increase with college students in America, let's just say North America and Western countries in general, I'm sure, but what causes it? Yes, again... We don't really know, but there is felt to perhaps be a genetic predisposition. But again, the nature-nurture argument becomes very difficult to kind of tease those things out. 
We know that people who have NPD have aggression, reduced tolerance to distress, and a dysfunctional, you know, ability to regulate their moods. But one of the thoughts is that developmental experiences, like as a child being rejected, may contribute to this occurrence of NPD. And they think as well, maybe if you got excessive praise as a child and you were like the golden child and you could do no wrong, that also may lead to it. You know, it probably is a bit more of maybe the failure of the parents to empathize with their child. And then you have to develop this. So you could think about this insecurity is so deep down, you have to develop this grandiose, omnipotence attitude in order to kind of make up for that. So you have to kind of retreat into yourself and feel special because you didn't get that feeling of specialness from your parents, right? That, you know, yeah. These people have a capacity for guilt or mourning or sadness that's really lacking. And this results in these feelings of shame, which you overcompensate for, and then envy and aggression. So it's really mm -hmm. more from a like, developmental psychology point of view it's been examined. The main person I think about, you know, in our extended family there, this is a person who's screwed up many things, lost his wife and children and, you know, can't hold down a job, alcoholic, but somehow it's never their fault. Mm -hmm. If there was a moment mm -hmm. of like, man, what have I done? There might be some like room for some kind of change or improvement, but you can't really sort of crack that. They went for rehab for alcohol you know, they went for treatment and they bailed early. You know, rehab is stupid. They don't know what they're doing, of course, was the comment there. But also we had access to the report and that report was also very illustrative that this person takes no responsibility for their own actions and jokes around a lot about serious things because they can't take things seriously because then that would, you know, it felt like it's protective because the further you go into serious, you might finally like come to terms with, oh my God, I screwed things up. Well, you know, I shouldn't say substance abuse is very common with these people, but okay. it's so interesting you mentioned that because the reason they seek treatment, it might be for the substance abuse, but they often seek treatment not because they're like, I need to be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. Often it's like their relationships, their lives don't live up to their standards and expectations. Mm -hmm. So they may see something like, how can I deal? They see a psychiatrist or psychologist. How can I deal with all these people who don't understand me or, you know, and then because, you know, it's, it's everybody else's problem, but their own, right? As you were saying. So they yeah. externalize and project onto others, victimhood, blaming others, criticizing other people for faults in other people, but don't see them in themselves. Like, again, it's everything you just said, right? And so, you know, you could be fired because you're a difficult person to work with. And then you're like, well, well why am I being fired? And then so then you might be going to mental health because of that, you know? Like, are you trying to deal with all these people who, who don't understand me? They're out to get me. Mm. Or they can develop depression, suicidality, social isolation, as you said. So it's all, and these emptiness and dysphoria and despair, and really they have these feelings of worthlessness, right, deep down. But as you said, that's you know, the very, very deep down, which you probably can't even get to, is the superficial. But just to be clear, the worthlessness is very deep down, and it's at odds with often 
their incredible sense of self-worth, yeah. which they've been fed as a yeah. young person, yeah. right? It's this, yeah. it's this discrepancy, this, this yeah, thing that exactly. doesn't exactly. They, they will okay. probably never admit to that. Maybe they will eventually with treatment, but. It's pretty clear that people aren't going to go check themselves in, right? They're not going to say, I think I have right, NPD, right. I need help. That's not what this condition, you know, permits people to do. So it's probably other people, if not medical professionals, you know, some people like the partners, spouses, that kind of stuff who are probably concerned. So how does it get diagnosed in the end? Yeah, usually it's just a standard psychiatric interview. These things will come out and the psychiatrist will kind of, you know, focus in some of these areas. There are instruments that you can use, like questionnaires, et cetera, that a psychiatrist or psychologist can go through with you to go through these to kind of diagnose that. An interesting problem that occurs, which almost is almost diagnostic of this, is something called countertransference. Have you ever heard of this before? I know this term. Yeah. I cannot remember what that is. I don't know. It is a bit more complicated. I'm going to try and simplify it. So I apologize to my colleagues in psychiatry and psychology for simplifying this. So let's start with the problem in someone with NPD. They have these feelings of shame and humiliation, and they feel that there's a lack of respect from others. People are slighting them all the time. Okay. So if you offer therapeutic help as a psychologist or psychiatrist, that may precipitate feelings of shame in the individual because now they're vulnerable because they are a patient. These feelings then may be difficult for the person with NPD to tolerate. So then they project even more of this grandiosity and omnipotence, and they almost want to make the physician or psychologist feel shameful and inadequate, wow. right? And then the countertransference is when you realize that you're developing these feelings of frustration, anger, this is never going to work, this therapeutic relationship is not there. Sometimes they'll do the opposite where the narcissist will inflate the ego of the, you know, you're the best doctor I've ever had, whatever. And some of this also occurs with people with borderline personality disorder, which we talked about in a previous episode. Feel free to check that out in the archives. So it's almost like the psychiatrist or psychologist needs to be aware of this countertransference, but it's almost like once you start feeling those feelings, you're like, oh, wait a minute, this person is probably has NPD because they're trying to engender these feelings in me, or I'm feeling these things. It's not a purposeful thing. It's it just what ends up happening. So anyway, it's an interesting kind of like finding that has been pointed out in some articles that I read about it. But you know, in the end, you treat these patients with standard psychological therapy. There's different strategies, different modalities based on different types of psychology. None of them have been really rigorously tested. So it's hard to recommend one versus the other. Again, the psychologists kind of know the different strategies that they can use. And there's no medicine either that, that necessarily helps. So it can be difficult to treat. And it's definitely a long road for the therapist and for the patient. So no proven treatment NPD is not easily solved by any means. And then you have to look at sort of techniques and tactics and strategies, right? Right, for right, the people right dealing exactly, with, with exactly. The NPD. Yeah. So what are those? How yeah. do you get into that? It's very difficult. And so what I think the advice that they give to a physician dealing with someone with NPD is to 
couple tips. Anticipate being treated as an audience to the patient's performance. Okay, very interesting, eh? And very again, why are these? Yeah, right? exactly. Expect to be drawn into lengthy accounts of the patient's life. You know, it's that main character syndrome, right? Everything is about them. When you interview them, you should agree at the start how and why you will interrupt them. Okay, so an experienced psychiatrist or psychologist knows this. Anticipate negative responses to perceived criticism, okay? Because anything that they perceive as disrespectful will create shame or humiliation in them, and they will react accordingly. Defensively, yeah. probably. Avoid directly challenging them, okay? Try and get around some of these ways instead of directly challenging them. Be empathetic with them without colluding to, like, their sense of grandiosity, right? But listening, empathetic listening. And you should reflect in yourself about this counter-transference rather than revealing these to the patients. You don't want to wow. tell them you're infuriating me right now. Like that is probably not going <laughs> to work. Is, these are awful strategies. Let me just be <laughs> frank with you. This is helping nobody. This is, just, this is just baseline managing your own mental health when dealing with somebody. Listen, who has man, this is why the therapists who know how to deal with this, I mean, I, my hat is off to them. They are very, very skilled. It's a very difficult disorder to try and treat. Even just starting off and thinking about an approach is very difficult. They really are impressive, the people who deal with this all the time. When it goes untreated, which it seems like that's people's lives, it's a whole life of no treatment. What are other complications that can stem from NPD? I mean, it's mainly the other things we talked about. So you could have mood disorders, substance use, as we talked about having other personality disorders, but you know, MPD is associated with a higher risk of death by suicide as compared to other personality disorders. So not attempted suicide, but death or like completed suicide, as we say, right? So probably- Which is interesting also because you think, with my apologies to anybody who's suffering through this, you know, tangentially or, or directly, but you would think somebody who believes that they're God's gift to this green earth would not then end their life, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. not on paper anyway. So things have to get pretty bad where they just, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're in despair over the fact that why are the best things that I deserve not happening? Right, right, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. yep, exactly. I would be remiss, Asif, not to end this discussion by not talking about the one person that I think probably every listener is thinking about, he's out there in the world. We've come to know him in the last, you know, half a decade, and it's hard not to think about him. And much has been mentioned, you know, the word narcissism comes up with him. But what are the thoughts on Donald Trump? Because I've been wanting to bring up his name the entire time, but I thought, let's get all the information out to see if there's anything that makes me go, oh, so then not Donald Trump, but that hasn't happened. Well, okay. It's tough because I guess what happened towards the end of his presidency and even the middle of it, psychiatrists, some very famous ones came out and said that he has narcissistic personality disorder. This led the American Psychiatric Association to issue a warning to its members to basically say, stop psychoanalyzing the president. Not because whether he does or doesn't, but you as an individual person who has never met the person in question, Donald Trump, or certainly not conducted a psychiatric evaluation of him, you really don't know. And you are simplifying a complex diagnosis, right? And I think that that is the issue. But on the other hand, I mean... On the other hand, I am not a member 
of the American Psychiatric Association. So I don't have to heed that warning at all. I I just know this checklist. You know, whenever I see patients, I so rarely tell them, you know, it's 100% this or it's 100% not this. Often I will say it's 100% not something because it's reassuring. You 100% do not have a brain tumor, you know, like that because it's reassuring. But if uh, the balance of probabilities, I'm like, it is quite likely that he has narcissistic personality disorder. Mm. That's how I would phrase it. I think it is quite likely on balance of probabilities that he does. I would have said textbook, but what do I know, huh? I'm not one of you doctory people. What do I know? But yeah, I think what do I know is where we end it. Okay, guys, that is our episode for today. As you could tell, Ali and I really want to talk about both of these topics. They were very, very Mm -hmm. interesting for us, hot off the presses. So let us know what you guys thought about the episode, drvcomedian at gmail.com, drvcomedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are everywhere. Reach out to us. Let us know what you guys thought. Any other topics? There are lots of other personality disorders, Ali, that we can talk about for better or for worse. We could talk about that. Very curious what you guys think about Hassan Minhaj's controversy and that article in the New Yorker. And, you know, very curious to see what happens going forward with him. Ali, anything for October going on? In Toronto, there's a show called Accent on Toronto. Mm -hmm. It is sold out, so I can't even promote it, but that will be great. You can listen to Laugh Out Loud on CBC Radio, and you will hear clips from Accent on Toronto over the course of the next few months. Besides that, filming season three of Run the Burbs and other stuff here and there might be in Kelowna. I don't know if I'll be able to make it, but on October 27th, at the end of October, Laugh Out Loud will be in Kelowna. So if you're in the region, in the interior of BC, and you want a good time, we canceled this in August because of obvious reasons, forest fires and this kind of stuff that was happening in the region. Mm -hmm. You rescheduled. But it has been rescheduled to the end of October, and it will be an excellent show. Around that same time, I will be seeing you two in Las Vegas with my wife and some friends. So I will not be in Kelowna, but uh, I will report back to you guys about this concert. So if you want a diagnosis of some kind and you can get to the concert, Asif will hand those out free That's in right. the bathroom on level three. Or are you not everyone's doctor, Asif? Well, that's right, Ali. Remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor or Donald Trump's doctor or Bono's doctor when I see him in... Uh... Maybe I'll diagnose him with MPD. Medical issues, we talk about it for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye.